Section sixty five of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book eighteen, chapter ten. Wherein the history begins to draw towards a conclusion. When Allworthy returned to his lodgings, he heard Mr. Jones was just arrived before him. He hurried, therefore, instantly into an empty chamber, whither he ordered Mr. Jones to be brought to him alone. It is impossible to conceive a more tender or moving scene than the meeting between the uncle and nephew, for Mrs. Waters, as the reader may well suppose, had at her last visit discovered to him the secret of his birth. The first agonies of joy which were felt on both sides are indeed beyond my power to describe. I shall not, therefore, attempt it. After Allworthy had raised Jones from his feet, where he had prostrated himself, and received him into his arms. "'Oh, my child!' he cried. "'How have I been to blame? How have I injured you? What amends can I ever make you for those unkind, those unjust suspicions which I have entertained, and for all the sufferings they have occasioned to you?' "'Am I not now made amends?' cries Jones. Would not my sufferings, if they had been ten times greater, have been now richly repaid? Oh, my dear uncle, this goodness, this tenderness overpowers, unmans, destroys me. I cannot bear the transports which flow so fast upon me. To be again restored to your presence, to your favour, to be once more thus kindly received by my great, my noble, my generous benefactor. Indeed, child, cries Allworthy. I have used you cruelly. He then explained to him all the treachery of Bliffle, and again repeated expressions of the utmost concern for having been induced by that treachery to use him so ill. Oh, talk not so, answered Jones. Indeed, sir, you have used me nobly. The wisest man might be deceived as you were, and, under such a deception, the best must have acted just as you did. Your goodness displayed itself in the midst of your anger, just as it then seemed— I owe everything to that goodness of which I have been most unworthy. Do not put me on self-accusation by carrying your generous sentiments too far. Alas, sir, I have not been punished more than I have deserved, and it shall be the whole business of my future life to deserve that happiness you now bestow on me. For, believe me, my dear uncle, my punishment hath not been thrown away upon me. Though I have been a great, I am not a hardened sinner." I thank heaven I have had time to reflect on my past life, where, though I cannot charge myself with any gross villainy, yet I can discern follies and vices more than enough to repent and to be ashamed of. Follies which have been attended with dreadful consequences to myself, and have brought me to the brink of destruction. I am rejoiced, my dear child, answered Allworthy, to hear you talk thus sensibly, for as I am convinced hypocrisy— Good heaven, how have I been imposed on by it, in others? Was never among your faults, so I can readily believe all you say. You now see, Tom, to what dangers imprudence alone may subject virtue. For virtue, I am now convinced, you love in a great degree. Prudence is indeed the duty which we owe to ourselves, and if we will be so much our own enemies as to neglect it, we are not to wonder if the world is deficient in discharging their duty to us. For when a man lays the foundation of his own ruin, others will, I am afraid, be too apt to build upon it. 
You say, however, you have seen your errors, and will reform them. I firmly believe you, my dear child, and therefore, from this moment, you shall never be reminded of them by me. Remember them only yourself, so far as for the future to teach you, the better to avoid them. But still remember, for your comfort, that there is this great difference between those faults which candor may construe into imprudence, and those which can be deduced from villainy only. The former, perhaps, are even more apt to subject a man to ruin. But, if he reform, his character will, at length, be totally retrieved. The world, though not immediately, will in time be reconciled to him, and he may reflect, not without some mixture of pleasure, on the dangers he hath escaped. But villainy, my boy, when once discovered, is irretrievable. The stains which this leaves behind, no time will wash away. The censures of mankind will pursue the wretch, their scorn will abash him in public, and if shame drives him into retirement, he will go to it with all those terrors with which a wary child, who is afraid of hobgoblins, retreats from company to go to bed alone. Here his murdered conscience will haunt him. Repose, like a false friend, will fly from him. Wherever he turns his eyes, horror presents itself. If he looks backward, unavailable repentance treads on his heels. If forward, incurable despair stares him in the face, till, like a condemned prisoner confined in a dungeon, he detests his present condition, and yet dreads the consequence of that hour which is to relieve him from it. Comfort yourself, I say, my child, that this is not your case, and rejoice with thankfulness to him who hath suffered you to see your errors before they have brought on you that destruction to which a persistence in even those errors must have led you. You have deserted them, and the prospect now before you is such that happiness seems in your own power. At these words Jones fetched a deep sigh, upon which, when Allworthy remonstrated, he said, sir i will conceal nothing from you i fear there is one consequence of my vices i shall never be able to retrieve oh my dear uncle i have lost a treasure you need say no more answered allworthy i will be explicit with you i know what you lament i have seen the young lady and have discoursed with her concerning you this i must insist on as an earnest of your sincerity in all you have said and of the steadfastness of your resolution that you obey me in one instance, to abide entirely by the determination of the young lady, whether it shall be in your favour or no. She hath already suffered enough from solicitations which I hate to think of. She shall owe no further constraint to my family. I know her father will be as ready to torment her now on your account as he hath formerly been on another's. But I am determined she shall suffer no more confinement, no more violence." no more uneasy hours. "'Oh, my dear uncle,' answered Jones, "'lay, I beseech you, some command on me, in which I shall have some merit in obedience. Believe me, sir, the only instance in which I could disobey you would be to give an uneasy moment to my Sophia. No, sir, if I am so miserable to have incurred her displeasure beyond all hope of forgiveness, that alone, with the dreadful reflection of causing her misery, will be sufficient to overpower me.' To call Sophia mine is the greatest, and now the only additional blessing which heaven can bestow. But it is a blessing which I must owe to her alone. "'I will not flatter you, child,' cries Allworthy. "'I fear your case is desperate. 
I never saw stronger marks of an unalterable resolution in any person than appeared in her vehement declarations against receiving your addresses, for which, perhaps, you can account better than myself. "'Oh, sir, I can account too well,' answered Jones. "'I have sinned against her beyond all hope of pardon, and guilty as I am, my guilt unfortunately appears to her in ten times blacker than the real colours. Oh, my dear uncle, I find my follies are irretrievable, and all your goodness cannot save me from perdition. A servant now acquainted them that Mr. Weston was below stairs, for his eagerness to see Jones could not wait till the afternoon. Upon which Jones, whose eyes were full of tears, begged his uncle to entertain Weston a few minutes, till he a little recovered himself, to which the good man consented, and, having ordered Mr. Weston to be shown into a parlour, went down to him. Mrs. Miller no sooner heard that Jones was alone, for she had not yet seen him since his release from prison, than she came eagerly into the room, and, advancing towards Jones, wished him heartily joy of his new-found uncle and his happy reconciliation, adding, "'I wish I could give you joy on another account, my dear child,' but anything so inexorable I never saw. Jones, with some appearance of surprise, asked her what she meant. "'Why, then,' says she, "'I have been with your young lady, and have explained all matters to her, as they were told to me by my son Nightingale. She can have no longer any doubt about the letter. Of that I am certain, for I told her my son Nightingale was ready to take his oath, if she pleased, that it was all his own invention, and the letter of his inditing.' I told her the very reason of sending the letter ought to recommend you to her the more, as it was all upon her account, and a plain proof that you was resolved to quit all your profligacy for the future, that you had never been guilty of a single instance of infidelity to her since your seeing her in town. I am afraid I went too far there, but, heaven forgive me, I hope your future behaviour will be my justification. I am sure I have said all I can— but all to no purpose. She remains inflexible. She says she had forgiven many faults on account of youth, but expressed such detestation of the character of a libertine that she absolutely silenced me. I often attempted to excuse you, but the justness of her accusation flew in my face. Upon my honour, she is a lovely woman, and one of the sweetest and most sensible creatures I ever saw. I could have almost kissed her for one expression she made use of, it was a sentiment worthy of Seneca, or of a bishop. "'I once fancied, madam,' said she, "'I had discovered great goodness of heart in Mr. Jones, and for that, I own, I had a sincere esteem. But an entire profligacy of manners will corrupt the best heart in the world, and all which a good-natured libertine can expect is that we should mix some grains of pity with our contempt and abhorrence.' "'She's an angelic creature, that's the truth on it.' "'Oh, Mrs. Miller,' answered Jones, "'can I bear to think that I've lost such an angel?' "'Lost? No,' cries Mrs. Miller. "'I hope you have not lost her yet. "'Resolve to leave such vicious courses, and you may yet have hopes. "'Nay, if she would remain inexorable, there is another young lady, "'a sweet, pretty young lady, and a swinging fortune.' who is absolutely dying for love of you. I heard of it this very morning, and I told it to Miss Weston. Nay, I went a little beyond the truth again, for I told her you had refused her. But indeed I knew you would refuse her. And here I must give you a little comfort. 
when I mentioned the young lady's name, who is no other than the pretty widow Hunt, I thought she turned pale. But when I said you had refused her, I will be sworn her face was all over scarlet in an instant. And these were her very words. I will not deny, but that I believe he has some affection for me. Here the conversation was interrupted by the arrival of Weston, who could no longer be kept out of the room even by the authority of Allworthy himself, though this, as we have often seen, had a wonderful power over him. Weston immediately went up to Jones, crying out, "'My old friend Tom, I am glad to see thee with all my heart. All past must be forgotten. I could not intend any affront to thee, because, as Allworthy here knows, nay, dost know it thyself,' I took thee for another person, and where a body means no harm, what signifies a hasty word or two? One Christian must forget and forgive another. I hope, sir, said Jones, I shall never forget the many obligations I have had to you, but as for any offence towards me, I declare I am an utter stranger. At, says Weston, then give me thy fist, at as hearty an honest cock as any in the kingdom. Come along with me, I'll carry thee to thy mistress this moment. Here Allworthy interposed, and the squire being unable to prevail either with the uncle or nephew, was, after some litigation, obliged to consent to delay introducing Jones to Sophia till the afternoon, at which time Allworthy, as well in compassion to Jones as in compliance with the eager desires of Weston, was prevailed upon to promise to attend at the tea-table. The conversation which now ensued was pleasant enough and with which, had it happened earlier in our history, we would have entertained our reader, but as we have now leisure only to attend to what is very material, it shall suffice to say that, matters being entirely adjusted as to the afternoon visit, Mr. Weston again returned home. CHAPTER Eleven, The history draws nearer to a conclusion. When Mr. Weston was departed, Jones began to inform Mr. Allworthy and Mrs. Miller that his liberty had been procured by two noble lords, who, together with two surgeons and a friend of Mr. Nightingale's, had attended the magistrate by whom he had been committed, and by whom, on the surgeon's oath that the wounded person was out of all manner of danger from his wound, he was discharged. One only of these lords, he said, he had ever seen before, and that no more than once but the other had greatly surprised him by asking his pardon for an offence he had been guilty of towards him, occasioned, he said, entirely by his ignorance who he was. Now, the reality of the case, with which Jones was not acquainted till afterwards, was this. The lieutenant, whom Lord Fellamar had employed, according to the advice of Lady Bellaston, to press Jones as a vagabond into the sea-service, when he came to report to his lordship the event which we have before seen, spoke very favourably of the behaviour of Mr. Jones on all accounts, and strongly assured that lord that he must have mistaken the person, for that Jones was certainly a gentleman, insomuch that his lordship, who was strictly a man of honour, and would by no means have been guilty of an action which the world in general would have condemned, began to be much concerned for the advice which he had taken. Within a day or two after this, Lord Fellamar happened to dine with the Irish peer, who, in a conversation upon the duel, acquainted his company with the character of Fitzpatrick, to which, indeed, he did not do strict justice, especially in what related to his lady. He said she was the most innocent, the most injured woman alive, and that from compassion alone he had undertaken her cause. He then declared an intention of going the next morning to Fitzpatrick's lodgings, in order to prevail with him, if possible, to consent to a separation from his wife, 
who, the peer said, was in apprehensions for her life, if she should ever return to be under the power of her husband. Lord Fellamar agreed to go with him, that he might satisfy himself more concerning Jones and the circumstances of the duel, for he was by no means easy concerning the part he had acted. The moment his lordship gave a hint of his readiness to assist in the delivery of the lady, it was eagerly embraced by the other nobleman, who depended much on the authority of Lord Fellamar, as he thought it would greatly contribute to all Fitzpatrick into a compliance, and perhaps he was in the right, for the poor Irishman no sooner saw these noble peers had undertaken the cause of his wife than he submitted, and articles of separation were soon drawn up and signed between the parties. Fitzpatrick, who had been so well satisfied by Mrs. Waters concerning the innocence of his wife with Jones at Upton, or perhaps from some other reasons, was now become so indifferent to that matter that he spoke highly in favour of Jones to Lord Fellamar, took all the blame upon himself, and said the other had behaved very much like a gentleman and a man of honour, and upon that lord's further inquiry concerning Mr. Jones, Fitzpatrick told him he was nephew to a gentleman of very great fashion and fortune, which was the account he had just received from Mrs. Waters after her interview with Dowling. Lord Fellamar now thought it behoved him to do everything in his power to make satisfaction to a gentleman whom he had so grossly injured, and without any consideration of rivalship, for he had now given over all thoughts of Sophia, determined to procure Mr. Jones's liberty, being satisfied, as well from Fitzpatrick as his surgeon, that the wound was not mortal. He therefore prevailed with the Irish peer to accompany him to the place where Jones was confined, to whom he behaved as we have already related. When Allworthy returned to his lodgings, he immediately carried Jones into his room, and then acquainted him with the whole matter, as well what he had heard from Mrs. Waters as what he had discovered from Mr. Dowling. Jones expressed great astonishment and no less concern at this account, but without making any comment or observation upon it. And now a message was brought from Mr. Bliffle, desiring to know if his uncle was at leisure that he might wait upon him. Allworthy started and turned pale, and then, in a more passionate tone than I believe he had ever used before, bid the servant tell Bliffle he knew him not. "'Consider, dear sir,' cries Jones, in a trembling voice. "'I have considered,' answered Allworthy, "'and you yourself shall carry my message to the villain. No one can carry him the sentence of his own ruin so properly as the man whose ruin he hath so villainously contrived.' "'Pardon me, dear sir,' said Jones. "'A moment's reflection will, I am sure, convince you of the contrary. What might perhaps be but justice from another tongue, would from mine be insult, and to whom? My own brother, and your nephew. Nor did he use me so barbarously. Indeed, that would have been more inexcusable than anything he has done. Fortune may tempt men of no very bad dispositions to injustice.' but insults proceed only from black and rancorous minds, and have no temptations to excuse them. Let me beseech you, sir, to do nothing by him in the present height of your anger. Consider, my dear uncle, I was not myself condemned unheard. Allworthy stood silent a moment, and then, embracing Jones, he said, with tears gushing from his eyes, "'Oh, my child, to what goodness have I been so long blind!' Mrs. Miller, entering the room at that moment, after a gentle rap which was not perceived, and seeing Jones in the arms of his uncle, the poor woman, in an agony of joy, fell upon her knees, and burst forth into the most ecstatic thanksgivings to heaven for what had happened. Then, running to Jones, she embraced him eagerly, crying, 
my dearest friend i wish you joy a thousand and a thousand times of this blessed day and next mr allworthy himself received the same congratulations to which he answered indeed indeed mrs miller i am beyond expression happy some few more raptures having passed on all sides mrs miller desired them both to walk down to dinner in the parlour where she said there were a very happy set of people assembled being indeed no other than mr nightingale and his bride and his cousin harriet with her bridegroom allworthy excused himself from dining with the company saying he had ordered some little thing for him and his nephew in his own apartment for that they had much private business to discourse of but would not resist promising the good woman that both he and jones would make part of her society at supper mrs miller then asked what was to be done with blifil for indeed says she i cannot be easy while such a villain is in my house allworthy answered he was as uneasy as herself on the same account oh cries she if that be the case leave the matter to me i'll soon show him the outside out of my doors i warrant you here are two or three lusty fellows below stairs there will be no need of any violence cries allworthy if you carry him a message from me he will i am convinced depart of his own accord will i said mrs miller i never did anything in my life with a better will here jones interfered and said he had considered the matter better and would if mr allworthy pleased be himself the messenger i know says he already enough of your pleasure sir and i beg leave to acquaint him with it by my own words let me beseech you sir added he to reflect on the dreadful consequences of driving him to violent and sudden despair how unfit alas is this poor man to die in his present situation this suggestion had not the least effect on mrs miller she left the room crying you are too good mr jones infinitely too good to live in this world but it made a deeper impression on allworthy my good child said he i am equally astonished at the goodness of your heart and the quickness of your understanding heaven indeed forbid that this wretch should be deprived of any means or time for repentance that would be a shocking consideration indeed go to him therefore and use your own discretion yet do not flatter him with any hopes of my forgiveness for i shall never forgive villainy farther than my religion obliges me and that extends not either to our bounty or our conversation jones went up to blifil's room whom he found in a situation which moved his pity though it would have raised a less amiable passion in many beholders he cast himself on his bed where he lay abandoning himself to despair and drowned in tears not in such tears as flow from contrition and wash away guilt from minds which have been seduced or surprised into it unawares against the bent of their natural dispositions as will sometimes happen from human frailty even to the good no these tears were such as the frighted thief sheds in his card and are indeed the effects of that concern which the most savage natures are seldom deficient in feeling for themselves it would be unpleasant and tedious to paint this scene in full length let it suffice to say that the behaviour of jones was kind to excess he omitted nothing which his invention could supply to raise and comfort the drooping spirits of blifil before he communicated to him the resolution of his uncle that he must quit the house that evening he offered to furnish him with any money he wanted assured him of his hearty forgiveness of all he had done against him 
that he would endeavour to live with him hereafter as a brother, and would leave nothing unattempted to effectuate a reconciliation with his uncle. Bliffle was at first sullen and silent, balancing in his mind whether he should yet deny all. But, finding at last the evidence too strong against him, he betook himself at last to confession. He then asked pardon of his brother in the most vehement manner, prostrated himself on the ground, and kissed his feet. In short, he was now as remarkably mean as he had been before remarkably wicked. Jones could not so far check his disdain, but that it a little discovered itself in his countenance at this extreme civility. He raised his brother the moment he could from the ground, and advised him to bear his afflictions more like a man, repeating at the same time his promises that he would do all in his power to lessen them, for which Bliffle, making many professions of his unworthiness, poured forth a profusion of thanks, and then, he having declared he would immediately depart to another lodging, Jones returned to his uncle. Among other matters, Allworthy now acquainted Jones with the discovery which he had made concerning the five hundred pound banknotes. "'I have,' said he, "'already consulted a lawyer who tells me, to my great astonishment, that there is no punishment for a fraud of this kind. Indeed, when I consider the black ingratitude of this fellow toward you, I think a highwayman compared to him is an innocent person.' "'Good heavens!' says Jones. "'Is it possible?' I am shocked beyond measure at this news. I thought there was not an honester fellow in the world. The temptation of such a sum was too great for him to withstand, for smaller matters have come safe to me through his hand. Indeed, my dear uncle, you must suffer me to call it weakness rather than ingratitude, for I am convinced the poor fellow loves me, and hath done me some kindnesses, which I can never forget. Nay, I believe he hath repented of this very act." for it is not above a day or two ago, when my affairs seemed in the most desperate situation, that he visited me in my confinement, and offered me any money I wanted. Consider, sir, what a temptation to a man who hath tasted such bitter distress it must be, to have a sum in his possession which must put him and his family beyond any future possibility of suffering the like. "'Child,' cries Allworthy, "'you carry this forgiving temper too far.' Such mistaken mercy is not only weakness, but borders on injustice, and is very pernicious to society, as it encourages vice. The dishonesty of this fellow I might perhaps have pardoned, but never his ingratitude. And give me leave to say, when we suffer any temptation to atone for dishonesty itself, we are as candid and merciful as we ought to be, and so far I confess I have gone, for I have often pitied the fate of a highwayman when I have been on the grand jury, and have more than once applied to the judge on the behalf of such as have had any mitigating circumstances in their case. But when dishonesty is attended with any blacker crime, such as cruelty, murder, ingratitude, or the like, compassion and forgiveness then become faults. I am convinced the fellow is a villain, and he shall be punished, at least as far as I can punish him. This was spoken with so stern a voice that Jones did not think proper to make any reply. Besides, the hour appointed by Mr. Weston now drew so near that he had barely time left to dress himself. Here, therefore, ended the present dialogue, and Jones retired to another room, where Partridge attended, according to order, with his clothes. Partridge had scarce seen his master since the happy discovery. The poor fellow was unable either to contain or express his transports. 
he behaved like one frantic, and made almost as many mistakes while he was dressing Jones as I have seen made by Harlequin in dressing himself on the stage. His memory, however, was not in the least deficient. He recollected now many omens and presages of this happy event, some of which he had remarked at the time, but many more he now remembered. Nor did he omit the dreams he had dreamt the evening before his meeting with Jones, and concluded with saying, I always told your honour something boded in my mind that you would one time or other have it in your power to make my fortune. Jones assured him that this boding should as certainly be verified with regard to him as all the other omens had been to himself, which did not a little add to all the raptures which the poor fellow had already conceived on account of his master. End of section 65